0: Please turn with me this morning in your copies of God's Word to that fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been taking up now for a couple of months. Uh, It's been a bit broken up, but we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, More especially, we've been considering the Beatitudes, and I do uh, at the very outset this morning want to read to you the first 12 verses uh, of this chapter again. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would remember that we are dust. And like a father who pities his children, Lord, we would plead with you that you would pity us this day. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. And as you speak, that Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, our eyes would see and our ears would hear and our hearts would understand. Lord, we ask that in all things you would be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The focus of uh, our concentration this morning, this afternoon, is going to be taken up in verse 9, where in this list of Beatitudes, the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There are a few observations regarding the remarkable unity of, of the Word of God as it relates to our Lord's words here that I think are worth commenting on as we take up this particular verse here in verse 9. Our Lord's words, never be mistaken about this as you come to, to this Sermon on the Mount, but our Lord's words are carefully measured and each beatitude, like precious jewels set in a crown, are strategically positioned with the steady hand of divine precision. Every single one of them. This is now, verse 9, as we come to this, the seventh in this series of these blessed statements by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, we're told that there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, Seven, Solomon says, are an abomination to him. And the seventh thing that the Spirit lists through this wise king as an abomination to God is him that sows discord among brethren. Solomon says, God hates this. He says that it's an abomination that it's a stench in his nostrils when there is discord sown among brethren. And that's the seventh thing listed in in this list of this compendium of things that God calls an abomination to him. Conversely, here in our verse, in these Beatitudes, Christ pronounces a blessing of approbation upon those who are peacemakers. The seventh in the list. And it comes... In direct contrast to that which Solomon listed in his list. Far from being a stench in the nostrils of God, these are called, these people, these peacemakers, are called here the sons of God. A second observation is this that, like all the others, all the other beatitudes that we have been considering, being a peacemaker flows from that which precedes it. Precedes it. It flows from purity of heart. all We've said as we've gone through these beatitudes that every single one of the beatitudes, each one is built upon the one that comes before it and flows out of the one that comes before it. And as we come to this one, again, with respect to the remarkable unity and wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, here again we find that these words, blessed are the peacemakers, flow from that which comes before it, blessed are those who are pure in heart. And rightly so seeing that it's out of the impurity of men's hearts that so much discord is sown in this world. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, James says, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, is sensual, is demonic." But when speaking about the wisdom that's from above in James chapter 3, James says that it is first pure, then peaceable. Exactly what our Lord is saying here in these Beatitudes. That is the mark of a man that is endued with heavenly wisdom. He is pure, he's a lover of God, and he's a lover of holiness. And from that single-minded love for God and love for holiness flows a heart that is peaceable, a spirit that is peaceable. And here Christ says to us in these Beatitudes that this is one of the hallmarks of those who are partakers of His kingdom. That they are not only pure in heart, but from that purity of heart flows this peacemaking. And I suppose... We might briefly add this third observation. As one has noted, seven was the number of perfection among the Jews. And as Christ speaks to these people, it seems as though He puts the peacemaker here, giving to it a special significance as if His intent was to teach that it is this attribute That gives completeness and gives wholeness to the Christian character that he's drawing for us here. Paul said, Become complete. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 13 and 11 and he says, Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Be complete live in peace. All of those things and those brief observations about how our Lord takes this and there's this marvelous unity with what's said in all of Scripture regarding this thing that we call peace, it should further impress upon us the great importance of this seventh beatitude as we come to it. Christ has drawn for us a whole picture of a blessed man, which is inclusive of every single one of these attributes that he spells out here, this seventh being, blessed are the peacemakers, and driving the Christian to that which some have called the complete man. Now having mentioned these things by way of introduction and observation, to just try at the very outset to impress upon our minds the significance of what it is that we're coming to take up here this morning, it then becomes our task to discover what our Lord means by this. If it's so vital and it's placed here in His infinite wisdom, so so precisely with such great precision, then we do well to take our time to discover what he means by this. As A.W. Pink noted with respect to this verse, the difficulty here lies in determining the precise significance and scope of the word peacemaker. And I would agree with him. As we come to this verse... This adjective that's used in verse 9, peacemaker, it's, the only, it's only one of two places that the word is used. Here it's, an, it's descriptive of the man of God. And then in Colossians 1.20, which we'll look at in just a little bit, it's used in its verb form. But because of that, we're not left with much by way of this particular word. And therefore, with A.W. Pink, I say it is. A difficult thing to determine the precise significance and the precise scope of the word peacemaker. And we have to take great measures and be very diligent and very careful as we open this up. And therefore, I'm going to use those two things that Pink says as our heads. That we're going to begin at least to open up this text from. The significance of this peacemaker and the scope of this peacemaker that our Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. Those are our two heads. What is the precise significance and what is the precise scope? Or you could put it this way. Why does he put this here? That's significance. And what does it mean then to be a peacemaker? That's scope. And then there's some other things that along the way will open up, but we won't get to them today. This is going to take some time because of, I think, just how great of a subject this whole matter of peacemaking is and how often we find it in the Scriptures. So, firstly, its significance. And like the other Beatitudes, in order to understand something of its significance, I believe, we've done this repeatedly, but I believe to first begin to understand its significance, we must begin with God. Because God reveals Himself to us as the God of peace. And His kingdom, we are told in the Scripture, is a kingdom of peace. Paul said, Romans 14, 7, For the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. On numerous occasions, God is declared to be, we just read one of them, Second Corinthians chapter 13, but God is cl- declared to be the God of peace. Paul tells us that he is emphatically, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33, that God is emphatically not the author of confusion, but of peace. And when God gives a prophetic glimpse of the ushering in of His kingdom through His Son, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we're told, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder, and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And then later, in Isaiah in chapter, the 54th chapter, we see that the everlasting covenant that God makes with His people is one of peace. Isaiah 54, verses 8 through 10, the Lord says there with a little wrath... I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. All of those verses that I've just briefly read, paint for us a very clear picture of what peace is, as it relates to God Himself. What is peace? It's the absence of confusion. It's the absence of disorder. The absence of chaos and instability and conflict and turmoil. But peace is more than that. It's positively the presence of all that is good, all that is fulfilling. The presence of God. That's actually what the Hebrew word shalom means. It means soundness. It means order. It means stability. It means joy, welfare, concord, and unity under the government and the headship and the smile of God. When the priest gave their benediction as was commanded by the Lord that they should do upon the people of God, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26, it shows us What peace is? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put My name on the children of Israel and I will bless them, the Lord says. And therefore, in light of all this, it shouldn't be surprising... That when the Lord Jesus Christ steps on to the scene, this is His message. And He says that this is a peculiar mark of those who are partakers of His kingdom. Peace begins in God. He is peace. His kingdom is peace. His coming is peace. His covenant is peace. And therefore, His people are peacemakers. But there's a massive problem with all this. And that is that there is a complete absence of this peace among those to whom the Lord Jesus spoke. His audience was not a peaceful people. Some of them were zealots. They were warmongers. Some of them were malicious and proud They were heart murderers, and in fact, he goes on to address that in this Sermon on the Mount. They were dealers of aggression, and their whole concept of the Messiah and his kingdom was built around that aggression. That his coming would be a combatant one, that he would usher in an age of great military might. That He would come in great power and that He would throw down all the enemies of the Jews. And they were salivating over that. They were like ravenous wolves. And so it was, you'll recall, John chapter 6, when He performed that miracle of breaking of the bread and He fed the, the people there. That they were ready, John tells us, John 6, 15, to come and to take Him by force and to make Him king. That's where their mind was. That's where their hearts were. That's what they were looking for in a Messiah. And you'll recall how that this was so pervasive in their thinking that it reached all the way to Herod and to Pilate and even to the, the, the Roman government. So that we find... In the latter part of John's Gospel, a whole interchange between Pilate and Christ. Regarding what? His kingship. John 18, John 19. And Pilate asked him in John chapter 18 verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's conception of this, that Jesus was the king of the Jews, was a militaristic one, just like that of the Jews thinking. And the claim that Jesus was a king was perceived to be a direct threat to the Roman Empire. And Jesus answers Pilate, not with a denial, but He answers him with a profound correction. John 18, 36, He says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If My kingdom where of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And the conclusion of that is, therefore, they do not fight. In other words, what the Lord Jesus is saying to Pilate, with respect to his kingdom, is that my kingdom is a heavenly one. My kingdom is a spiritual one. My kingdom is fundamentally altogether different than the kingdoms of this world. And my kingdom is altogether different with regard to the aims of the kingdoms of this world. And you know what? That infuriated the Jews. They rejected him and they killed him because of that. There was an absence of peace among them and an absence of peace in the world and an absence of peace in all earthly kingdoms. And there still is. That's what he's addressing here. In this beatitude, this world and all of its kingdoms are anything but peaceful. The situation is desperate, and the forecast with respect to this world is bleak. When we look around, what we find is not peace. We find hostility, we find aggression, we find chaos, and we find war. And the irony of all that is that the whole world is fighting for peace, and yet they can't find it. They organize themselves and arm themselves to obtain it, and yet it all still eludes them. And not all of the weaponry of modern ingenuity and all of the peace treaties and all of the United Nations and all of the rallies and all of the organizations for world peace have ever been successful in achieving their intended goal. They've failed. And they failed miserably. And the problem is, that all the continual conflict that we see in the world is merely the manifestation of a much deeper spiritual problem. Peace among men, peace among nations, organizations, peace among families, peace even between a man and himself can never be achieved until first there's peace With God. The great problem, brethren, that the world faces and why peace eludes them is because the world is at war with Him. Right? And I would add to that that quite frankly, that's the central problem to all of our emotional and all of our relational turmoil that we are at war fundamentally with God. It's interesting to me, if you go and you Google, do a Google search for something like, how many wars have there been in the course of human history? New York Times has a number, and they give a number of how many years there has been peace. No matter what number they come up with, I would say that they're all wrong. I can't remember exactly how many numbers of years they say that there have not been that there has been no fighting whatsoever on the earth, but I would say this, that if we understand the Bible and if we understand what scripture teaches us, then we understand this that ever since the fall there's not been a single day upon planet earth wherein there has been peace. And if we can't point directly to to wars that are taking place on a global scale, we can point to wars that are taking place from country to country. And if we can't point to that, then we can point to wars that are taking place within countries. And if we can't point to that, then we can point to the turmoil that exists in the workplace. And if we can't point to that, then we can point to the turmoil that exists within the home. We're in conflict with one another constantly because we're in conflict with God over uh, who's in control of our hearts and our lives. And that's the central problem. When you look out over all the various problems of the world, do you think in those terms? The way of peace, Paul says, they have not known, Romans 3, 17, as he gives the list of the sinner and what, what... shows the the outworkings of the sinner, he ends that list in verse 17 by saying, the way of peace they have not known. We know that. We plainly see it all around us. But the question becomes, why is that? Paul's next statement in that list, Romans 3 and verse 18, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Man has cast cast off God, and he has no regard for Him. Man says to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. That's, That's the problem. Man does not want the ways of God. What he wants is his own way. He wants to do His own will. He wants to follow His own pleasures. Men don't want their lives to be held accountable to God. And deep within the soul of man is this this aversion that is rooted there. And I would say that that's the ultimate trouble with mankind. He's at enmity against God. He's... At war with God, he's alienated from the life of God. His understanding is darkened because of the ignorance that is in him, because of the blindness of his heart, Paul says. That's God's testimony concerning man. And all of that, I say, is a result of the fall. The result of what happened in the garden. The prince of darkness deceived, beguiled, Our first parents disrupted the peace and disrupted the concord that existed between God and man and now that prince of darkness dominates the whole of the human race. Man is dead in his trespasses. He's dead in his sins. And he walks according to the course of this world, Paul tells us. According to the prince of the power of the air who leads men captive to do his will. We read that this morning in our scripture reading. He blinds their minds to the fact of God. He blinds their minds to the truth of God. And as a result, you have a whole world that is adrift. A whole world living in utter selfishness before almighty God and if you look one has said at the whole of human history you will find that it is a running record of this alienation and the fruits of it and that's the reason for all that we see in this world the the wars the fightings the pervasive self-centeredness the carnality the dysfunctionality of the home. I would say the downright meanness and rudeness that exists all around us. All the obscenity and all the perversity and all of the godless secularism and all of the materialism. Just look around. I won't give you examples. There are too vile and disgusting. But I will say this. If you don't believe the report of Scripture and what I'm saying, just get in your vehicle and drive down the road and watch people in their cars. Watch how someone who doesn't even know the person that's in front of them screams at them in anger. Listen to the ways in which families interact with one another. See what I'm saying. I I know that you'll see what I'm saying. James says, in James 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, James says in chapter 4. And it's all due to the fact that men are living in alienation and separation from God and have drawn up all the weapons of war that they can to get rid of Him and to exalt themselves. He goes on in James chapter 4 to say, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Man is at war with God. Man is at war within himself, and man is at war with one another. And all the while they cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. I say, that's what Christ is addressing here. The absence of peace, and how contrary that is to the kingdom that he has come to establish. And Christ says to us in Matthew 5 9, in the midst of this great global restlessness that is the result of this rebellious churning of men's hearts, blessed are the peacemakers. He's definitively saying that those who are His must be the total opposite of this. That's something. Of the significance of these words. God is a God of peace. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace. His covenant is a covenant of peace. And therefore in the midst of all that we see that is contrary to that all around us, He calls His people to be peacemakers. But now what about its scope? What exactly then is a peacemaker. And what I'm going to say here is that we are only this morning going to begin to touch what this means. There is going to be other sermons that follow because I don't believe that there's any way that I can move through this adequately in the way that I believe that it needs to be moved through. But the first thing that must be noted under the scope What is, answering that question, what is a peacemaker? Is it given the condition of the world and given the condition of the human heart? Man cannot be a peacemaker until he has first been made to be at peace with God. In other words, he must first be a peace receiver before he can be a peacemaker. His enmity to God must be dealt with, and his enmity to God must be overcome. That's the whole purpose of Christ coming into this world. In fact, you could say it this way that Christ himself is the chief peacemaker. If you want to see what it means to be a peacemaker in its full-orbed scope, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows us by His life, and He shows us by His death, and He shows us by His resurrection, really what it means to be this. In fact, the only other place that you find this particular word, I said it earlier, I mentioned it earlier, is the verb form that's in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. And that's very important. Because there Paul says this, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having, here's the verb, made peace, through the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. What's He saying Paul is saying that though the world lay, in fact, you could even, based on Paul's world, say, though the whole universe lay in this horrid, disjointed condition, and man be at war with God Himself, the Savior Himself crossed over the enemy lines and came into this world of hostility and enmity to suffer at the hands of men who raged in their madness that he by his very dying act upon that tree might bear the penalty of our rebellion so that when a man looks to him in faith, when a man seeks forgiveness for all his treasonous acts, he might be reconciled fully to God through the blood of his cross. Christ did what he did so that man might be brought back to God. And so that in the viewing of this unspeakable sacrifice of himself, men might see their rebellion. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. See the sacrifice appointed. That's what the hymn writer says. And in seeing that, they might drop their weapons and flee to God in Christ. That's what he came to do. But more than that, I would say this. He not only pursues peace with an unpeaceable people and makes a way for that peace to be restored, but He lays His mighty hand upon the sinner and he himself, in all of his authority, and all of his power, overcomes all the enmity that lies within the soul of that man. And by the power of his blood, and by the power of the gospel, and by the power of his spoken word, he comes and he conquers the heart, and he bestows peace upon his people, and he puts his peace in us. For he himself is our peace. Isaiah, the Lord says, I create the fruit of the lips, Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal them. One old commentator made this observation about this verse that I think is so precious. Peace with God, he said, made by Christ is the fruit of Jehovah's lips, who promised it in covenant on condition of Christ's shedding his blood to make it and spoke of it in prophecy as what should be obtained by Christ the peacemaker. And then he says this, And peace of conscience flowing from it, Is the fruit of Christ's lips, who promised, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That's his gift imparted to his people. Know what peaceful rivers flow in the hearts of those to whom Christ says, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a great disarmament takes place when a man is truly reconciled to God in Christ. If you've ever seen someone before and after, you can see so clearly. What a great disarmament takes place. He's given peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, this man. And he's given the peace of God in his own soul by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given a disposition of peace. And his wild, restless, churning heart is sweetly calmed and made to happily acquiesce at the throne of God. And the song of his heart becomes, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. This, I would say, is the necessary prerequisite of being what Jesus tells us to be, a peacemaker. And apart from that reconciliation with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, No man can be a peacemaker. Not in the way that he means it. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you know God? Do you know the God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ? Can you be honest with yourself? And say, Yes, I'm sharing the life of God. Do you know what it is to have found rest and peace for your soul? Do you know what it is to come to the source and the fountain of life and joy and peace? Do you know what it is to come to the well of salvation and to draw with joy from it? Do you know that for yourself? That's the greatest problem that stands in the way of man at this hour. That he has need Of being reconciled to God. And I don't mean by that just paying lip service. I mean by that being overcome by the greatness of this gospel. So that he happily bends his knee to King Jesus. Do you know that? That's the difference between those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who do not. The Christian has found the peace of God in coming to this God of peace. And so I ask you again, where do you stand? Young children, where do you stand? With judgment Day honesty, where do you stand? I ask you older and aged who may be here and not know Him, where do you stand? The great peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, He speaks so sweetly, even this day, even in this very hour, even in this very moment, even through these very words, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And thank God. And thank God for His pursuing peace with us. That's the nature of what we're dealing with here if we understand it Rightly. You would never seek peace with God. You, in your own native condition, are at war with Him irreconcilably. Someone may say, No, I'm not. Do you love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Do you serve Him? Do you seek after Him? Is your life pure? Is your life holy? Or do you go on doing whatever it is that pleases you and not Him? We would never give up the pleasures and the lusts Of our flesh to seek after Him. He seeks us. He pursues us. He comes into this world. He preaches the gospel to our ears and our hearts. And He says, Come, sinner, and be ye reconciled to God. Through my body and my blood that was shed. Thank God for His pursuing peace with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. Many of us in this room this morning know. Of certainty, what it means to be at war with you, rebellious and God hating and despising you, even cursing your name. And we know what it means to be overcome by the power of the gospel and to have our hearts so melted before you by your grace that we are reconciled to you by those five bleeding wounds that the Lord Jesus bears. Lord, I would pray this morning that as the God of peace, that you might be pleased to come and speak peace to the restless soul, to the wonder who's far astray. Lord, please, let them not ignore you but speak to them that they might rest in you. We ask it in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.